0: Mimetic desire often manifests itself in in shadow sides and in in negative, unhealthy ways that don't ultimately lead to happiness.
1: Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Trombley and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations one between the two of us, and another will be an in depth conversation with an expert. My name is Caleb Bonteveros. In this conversation, I speak with Luke Burgess. Luke is a philosopher, writer, and serial entrepreneur. His most recent book is called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And that's what we talk about in this conversation. Luke gives us a basic crash course on the ideas of mimetic theory and suggests some routes for practice. After understanding the theory, mimetic theory is so important for Stoics to understand because it's an account of how we come to want things that are not up to us, things that are outside of our power, things that are not really valuable. Luke is doing the excellent work of describing practical, relevant, and deep ideas that can so often be described in esoteric or unnecessarily jargon-filled ways. So, here it is. So, let's start with this question. What's your story?
0: My story. That's a good good opening. Good to be with you. My story is one of desire, like everybody's story is. And sort of the reason why I wrote the book that I did is that I didn't realize that my story was a story of, of wanting various things and often not knowing why I wanted them. The objective story, the story that you would see from the outside looking in is you know, the kind of resume questions, right? I'm from Michigan and born and raised in, in Grand Rapids on the west side of the state, went to school in New York, graduated from NYU Stern, worked on Wall Street, um, was pretty miserable in my investment banking job, and this was 2005, so I'm definitely dating myself. And I, I was hearing about many of my friends and other people doing really cool things in startup world. And this was before startups were really that cool. They were, you know, Silicon Valley was, was certainly, it was very much a thing, but there wasn't the uh, mimetic attraction to, to it the way that there is these days. So at the time I was working in Hong Kong and quit my job as an investment banker in Hong Kong, flew to California, started a series of companies in my 20s before becoming relatively disillusioned with the process of of, of starting selling companies, closing companies down, which I, I had to do once, or walking away from them. And I, I realized that this the disillusionment that I had or the lack of meaning that I felt was completely detached from the degree of success that any any businesses that I started had. There was something detached from that. And when I had that realization, it was kind of a startling one because I, I was really convinced that and I was seeking certain things, financial freedom, all these typical things. And when I realized that it, that I wasn't going to solve my problem through mere hu It was a real scary thing for me to realize, and I stepped away from one of my companies in 2008 and really embarked on a. Sometimes I call it my seven years in Tibet, like my like really like going into the desert, going mm-hmm. into the mountains. In my case, it was actually the desert because I I by that point I had moved my company to Las Vegas and I was running my companies in Vegas, and I quite literally went out into the desert and, and just sort of was, was away from those things for a while to understand what it was that was really driving, which led me on a very long journey that was deeply spiritual, led me to study philosophy and theology for several years, um, do a lot of reading. Frankly, I, read a, I, I deeply dove into Stoicism during that time, um, which your listeners may be interested in. And then I kind of came out I came out the other side of that process with just kind of a much more integrated understanding of who I was, of what business was all about, like of why I, I I do the things that I do. And I you know, I prefaced my very short little story there with you know, this is the objective view, right? These are the things that you could probably find everything that I just said online. But everybody has a subjective. Story, right? It's like the story that only they could tell—the story from the inside, the story about what was really going on, which is always the more important story. And we can't always see people's desires from the outside looking in. You know, we only, we only, we only, we we're the only ones that know what our desires are. And frankly, we we often don't even know what our desires are. So, for me, it, it was this real chaos of of being drawn to a bunch of different things without having done a lot of internal reflection about that, the, the powers of attraction that were pulling me in these various places, which made me feel like I whiplash for, for a long time. I mean, certainly throughout my 20s. So I'm a lot older than that now and, and wear a lot of different hats now, which is how I like it because I get bored doing any one thing for too long. So, you know, I'm now, my story has taken me to a place where I'm still very much an entrepreneur with my hands in a lot of still very early stage things. I'm a professor of business at Catholic University of America in Washington, D. And of course, I'm a writer, both sort of long form stuff like my book and, and regularly write weekly because I'm realizing how important the process of writing is for me to actually think, right? Writing is kind mm-hmm. of the way that I, I, I understand what it, what it is that I actually think about things is through writing, often poorly at first and trying to work out ideas in my mind.
1: Yeah, it is a funny how you have the initial sense of a crisp idea, some crisp insight, and then move to writing it and it seems like it falls away or wasn't as crisp as you initially thought. You realize it's not, not so crisp anymore. Yeah. yeah. The writing is definitely a humbling process. Yeah, absolutely. So wanting concerns looking at desire, of course, looking at wants and it's primarily focused on the mimetic theory, a theory that it comes from the philosopher Rene Girard. I wonder if you could help us walk through the the basics of of that. Sure. So, mimetic theory is a complex
0: set of interrelated ideas and articulated first by the social theorist named René Girard, who was originally from France, um, but moved to the U.S. shortly after World War II and is most well-known several decades-long stint that he spent at Stanford, where he was a professor of French literature and civilization for, for many years, and he died in 2015 and he had some very famous students who have have really done a good job of of carrying on his legacy. But Rene Girard's core idea was mimetic desire. So he realized that human desire is by its very nature imitative. We imitate the desires of other people without knowing that we're doing it almost always. And this is a real innovation in thought, like this realization Nobody had ever said it this way before. You know, many great thinkers, Plato and Aristotle both, were speaking about the role that imitation plays in human life. They spoke about imitation in art and imitation in education. For instance, just the way that we learn languages, right? You know, we, we're, we're just babblers as babies, and then we learn to imitate a specific language, usually that our parents speak. And it's the only way that we can stop babbling is if we start imitating with very short constraints. Otherwise, we just imitate everything. So, you know, it's it just plays a fundamental part in human development. But nobody had really thought about imitation going down to this deeper layer of the human experience, which is desires. And it, it really kind of makes sense if you think about it. I mean, we, we do, it, you know, we... We moderns have this idea, I think, of, of generating our own desires, right? Like we, we have this authentic autonomous self, and my desires just come out of that autonomous self. But if you really stop and drill down into that, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Like, you know, we're, we're, I was born to, into a family and into a culture and into a context. And I definitely have some things that I can want that are just built into my my kind of evolutionary biology, right? Like when it comes to knowing when I'm thirsty or hungry, cold, all of these things. But there's a whole universe of desires that fall outside of, of, of the things that I, I just like to think of them as needs, right? The things that I need, mm-hmm. that my body tells me that I need. And when it comes to these kinds of things, like who I'm going to follow on Twitter, you know, what brand of fancy bottled water I'm going to buy, what kind of career I start fantasizing about in my mind when I'm in high school, what kind of style I adopt when I'm an, a, a teenager. All of these things, they have to come from models of desire that are outside of ourselves. In other words, Gerard's point is if, it, if, if this desire wasn't in some way modeled to us, there's no way that we can have it. You know, we don't just generate these things out of thin air, and you know that can sound like a, tr- a trivial point sometimes, but Gerard really went deep with this this idea of mimesis and mimetic desire, and he said that in fact, this the 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 the, the notion that human desire is imitative or derivative in some way explains a lot of strange things about our culture, such as conflict and rivalry. Like the like why do we tend to be to gravitate towards wanting the same things that other people want and then become mm-hmm. their rivals or become envious of them? Well, it's because of mimetic desire. It's because this mimesis is a force that draws us towards other people, which can be in positive ways, right? Uh, it can draw us to be more like people that, dis, that model positive, empathetic desires to us, or it can draw us towards people for all the wrong reasons, because we somehow want what they want. And we think that if we get that thing before they get that thing, that we're somehow you know, winning Okay, to make it mm-hmm. overly simplistic. And Girard used the core idea of mimetic desire to explain human conflict and rivalry and and explain why we're more rivalrous creatures than we really like to talk about. You know, we talk about rivalry in politics and sports, but very rarely do we speak about it in the rest of life, in business world, inside of our company, and our family. It's not something that we like to talk about a lot, but often mimetic desire and mimesis is driving some of those things. And he, he, if you take his theory all the way to the end, it's actually a theory of of human culture and cultural development and the things that and, and how mimetic mimesis right negative mimesis can lead to violence and all of the things that we do to prevent ourselves from from our our negative imitation destroying us basically right all of the mm-hmm. different things that humans do to protect us from ourselves right so it, it comp- It's very complicated, but the core of his whole theory is the idea of mimetic desire and mimetic is simply, the, it comes from the Greek word that means to imitate, means imitation. So just when you hear mimetic desire, you can think imitative desire, that we imitate the desires of other people. And he used the word mimetic though, for a reason. He could have just called it imitative desire, but he thought that it needed a different word because... Imitation is something that we, we're not, is it, a bit more out in the open, and we can speak openly about the models that we choose to imitate. But mimesis has a bit of a hidden, hiddenness to it, right? So it's not like a m- mimetic desire means that we're, we're imitating in this subtle, often unconscious way and bringing it to light right? Bringing some of that mimesis to light is important because it helps us understand some of these hidden models in our lives that may
1: have been shaping our desires without us even knowing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many people have noticed that humans are very social creatures. We imitate each other to a very large degree. But what Gerard brings attention to is not just in our behaviors, beliefs, but our very desires, as you say, are imitative. And almost what it is to desire is not just to have something, you know, all by ourselves as some isolated unit, but to desire is to do so through someone else. It's a social activity and not one, as you said, that's obvious. It's often quite subtle or hidden from our introspection, at least initially. Yeah. And, and, you know, if desire is, is also
0: always for something that we feel that we lack Otherwise, it wouldn't be desire at all. So, you know, it seems like a simple statement, but it's actually, this, this, these are Gerard's words. It's actually a profound statement, right? So the very nature of desire is social, yes, but it's also for something that we feel that we lack. So desire stems from almost an inadequacy that we feel or a lack of being. And that's why Girard said that, you know, all desire ultimately is a desire for being, right? It's a desire, you know, to 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 be. And this implies that desire is closely related to the human need for transcendence, right? So we 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 feel like we lack something and we need to somehow transcend where we're at, like we, we think that our our by desiring that thing will help us to transcend where we're at and bring us from one state to another. Right? You could almost think of it like a rite of passage. Like mm-hmm. a, a desire, if it's if it's working the way that we think it will, is a rite of passage out of one state of being and and into another. Now, oftentimes, this that's a, a total illusion, right? Like. You know, I, I I desire a Tesla because I, I I have this story in my mind that if I start driving a Tesla, I'll 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 actually sort of acquire some kind of you know magical property where I'm, I'm I'll suddenly be like a more I don't know environmentally conscious person. I'll be more technologically plugged in. I don't know. I'll be a better husband. <laughs> I, I take this all kinds of crazy things. Right? We could start imagining. Like that these these objects become like talismans in our minds where we think that if we complete the rite of passage and we get the thing that we desire, that will somehow be transformed. And I think most of consumerism, right, like lies behind this idea and is largely fueled by by this journey of desire that people make.
1: Yeah, it's not the lack of an object, but it's a much deeper lack, a lack that we are a specific person. Yeah. I like how you make this sort of the modeling concrete with the notions of Freshmanistan and Celebristan. I wonder if you could talk about those concepts a little bit more too. So Gerard says that there are two main kinds of models of
0: desire in our world. The first kind is the kind we typically think of as a role model but not just a role model, somebody who's outside of our world, who's, we don't really come into contact with them in any way. They just kind of exist in a different plane of existence. So, you know, Michael Jordan, to most basketball players, unless you played with him, is going to be this kind of a model. And Girard calls these external models of desire. They're models that are outside of our world. There's no possibility of coming into contact with them. And most importantly, there's no possibility of like a conflictual rivalry with them. They probably don't know that we exist. So they're they're like a safe kind of model, right? Mm-hmm. We can imitate them without them knowing it. In right. these kinds of models, Gerard calls external models of desire. I call that I call this world of the external models Celebristan. And we all have a celebristan. Yeah, you, know, you could probably name one person who's in your celebrity stand. Maybe they won't always be in your celebrity stand. Maybe maybe someday that will change, right? That's happened for me. But right now they're outside of your world. And the other kind of model is the more important one, really. These are the kinds of models that we, we don't typically recognize or acknowledge, and they're the ones that are inside of our world, the ones that Gerard says are internal models of desire. So they're somehow like bound up with our very lives. We can come into contact with them. They might know that they're our model. So, you know, you think of a, I don't know, in high school, you think of, you know, a classmate, for instance, right? Somebody, you get a haircut and, you know, the next day somebody walks into class with the same haircut, the same, you know, brand of jeans or something like that. And you sort of notice and you're like, huh, this person is paying attention to me in some way or vice versa, right? Like, you know, so we can normally acknowledge and know that. And this is a different, imitation works a little differently in this world of internal models. And in my book, I I give a nickname to this internal world and I call it Freshmanistan because the best example that I can think of, of, of a world that's dominated by internal, the internal mediation of desire is like being a freshman. In high school or college, it was certainly my experience of it, where everybody's kind of on in the same boat. Everybody has a lot of similarities, and everybody can imitate everybody else if they want. And there's there's kind of a a level of reflexivity in the imitation that doesn't exist with the external models of desire. So there's there's the possibility of noticing that you're imitating or that somebody is imitating you. And if you think about how strange imitation is. It's strange in the world of of Freshmanistan. It's not really strange in the world of Celebristan. We all kind of know how that works. You know, like you admire Michael Jordan, you imitate his style, you might buy his shoes. But in Freshmanistan, the rules are different. It's kind of hidden. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to acknowledge that we have models. And there's this really strange phenomenon that we kind of like being imitated in Freshmanistan. Kind of like to know that people are imitating us, but not too much. Like, there's this real delicate dance of imitation that people like need to play in this kind of world. And anybody, probably everybody listening who's either been through high school or is in it, like understands what that's like. And we all kind of go through this delicate dance of mimesis in freshmanistan. And the point that I make in the book is that. It doesn't end when we graduate, when we're not in school anymore. There are many different kinds of freshmanistan, right? Like inside of organization. I think like all of most of social media is like one giant freshmanistan that kind of works like this. So, one of the hypotheses that I have is that our world is kind of moving from a world where there used to be more. External modeling of desire, where there were like these, you know, big kind of um, uh, celebrity stand figures that people would <laughs> openly imitate, right? Like people like culturally agreed upon models. And now we're sort of that's kind of collapsing into more of a world of in, internal mediation, in, turn of, in terms of fresh where you know everybody's kind of looking to everybody else, and that's a very different kind of world. It's not as it's a world that's not as stable. And it's a world where there's a lot of very complex and dynamic social things that are happening at at all times.
1: Yeah, it's interesting the move from perhaps, or at least the decrease of people having these external mod. One thing we do in Stoa is we have an exercise called the contemplation of the sage, which is familiar to many traditions that basically involves meditating on a role model. Classically, it'd be someone like Socrates for the Stoics and thinking about how they would challenge you, observe you, or perhaps what they would do in your place if they're in the same situation. And a common email we get is, I have a having a hard time picking a role model, or I don't feel like I have any role models, which strikes me as plausibly a distinct phenomenon from what we might see, what we might see in the past. I'm not sure if it seems like that fits your observation as well.
0: That's interesting because I run a similar exercise with all of my students in, in a course that I teach, which is the introduction to entrepreneurship. And I I do see a similar, a similar phenomenon actually where they have a hard time finding just one at least, right? So you know, maybe, they're like, maybe they have like five and they sort of like need to cobble together like a synthetic model mm-hmm. from the fives. But it is important to concretize the things in figures or people, right? Socrates is a great one. It, it's a really important exercise to go through because ideas, concepts, dispositions that are spoken about in the abstract that are just kind of floating around much harder to understand, right? Like humans need figures, humans need stories. Right. It's why any any decent book, right, has you have to tell stories, but to sort of incarnate the ideas. You know, I think that's a really important exercise for people that to go through. And I I I just my my approach is to to challenge at least my students to to focus to, to find one, right? And and sometimes that is the project is finding the one. And they, they might need to take a lot longer on that than they thought. But you're absolutely right. It it is a distinct thing from what from what I'm speaking about. But I perhaps, and I'm just thinking of this now, like perhaps that exercise wouldn't have been so difficult 50 years ago, right? Like perhaps this shift that I'm describing is
1: why it's not as easy as it used to be. But I I do think it it is distinct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how does this lead then to? conflict, rivalry, this phenomena of mimetic desire? On a basic level, if if you just walk through the way that mimetic desire works,
0: it, it's kind of obvious why it leads to rivalry because we're taking another person, especially in the, in the world of Freshmanistan, it leads to rivalry. It doesn't really in the world of Celebristan. And that's why I, I focus on Freshmanistan. If we're taking somebody as a model of desire. We want what they want. And so, not, not the object that they want, we desire their desire in some sense. So, as their desires change, our desires change. If somebody's a really powerful model of desire for us, then we're tethered to their desire and not to the objects of their desire. This is a really important thing to understand when you're trying to understand Girard. You know, think of a think of a younger brother and an older brother where the you know, the older brother is, is like a really powerful model of desire to the younger brother. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one one year the older brother is really into skateboards and then after a few years, you know, he switches and he's really into I don't know, they live in southern he's really into surfing now. Okay. They live in Southern California. Yeah. So the younger younger brother will, will, will often follow the desire. So, you know, it's not, it wasn't the skateboard that was important. It was that the brother desired to be good at skateboarding. So that's, that's, so Girardian sort of desire is not object oriented desire. It's person oriented desire. You know, we, we become fixated on a person and, you know, sometimes that's fine. You know, it can even be healthy. I think in the, you know, in the case of younger brothers and older brothers, it's fine, right? Unless that that doesn't allow a process of individuation to happen. That's a whole separate conversation. But it leads to rivalry and conflict because we're, we, we sort of can untether ourselves from from the people that are these strong models of desire for us, and and you know, we begin to measure ourselves according to what they want and where we're at and the the, the kinds of things that they're pursuing, and it can prevent us from ever becoming ourselves in a way right or or ever like taking the time to to gain some detachment and separation and understand that the relationship that we're in with our models of desire can distort reality in various ways right it can sort of make things valuable that don't have a lot of value in themselves right their value only comes from the attention that the model is pl- is paying to it, yeah, you know, there's a whole lot to be said about even about NFTs when it comes to this. So it, it it can just it can lead to rivalry because we're now wanting what somebody else wants, and we can become caught in kind of a never a never ending cycle where we we can never kind of escape that gravitational pull. I mean, you should almost think of it as 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 gravity as as sort of like planets orbiting around a sun but in the case of people right that, that kind of attachment can become unhealthy and can lead to rivalry. practice stoicism with stoa stoa combines the ancient philosophy of stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app it includes hundreds of hours of exercises lessons and conversations to help you live a happier life here's what our users are saying i'm new to stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. Life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations.
1: Find it available for free download in the Play Store and App Store. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how is this a common idea that's connected with Gerard, of course, is this idea of scapegoating? So how does this, how does this come into, into play with, we have some initial rivalry situation and then scapegoating, how does that solve or not this situation? Uh, scapegoating is, you know we probably need, need more time
0: to, to dedicate to scapegoating than, than I can do justice to in the rest of our conversation, but it, it, you have to move. So everything that I've been saying so far is kind of on the micro level, right? If I've been describing the way that mimesis and mimetic desire and rivalry works in 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 single relationships between you know two or three people for the most part or like in a high school classroom. In in groups though, this this kind of mimetic contagion can can spread. Where I mean we you can you can even think of this in in like a in a classroom, but this can happen on a societal level as well, where there there are no external models of desire. Everybody's an internal model of desire to everybody else. It's unclear sort of who is imitating who. This process of sort of mimetic contagion leads to what Girard calls a loss of differ, differentiation or a crisis of sameness. In other words, there's, there's not, people are subconsciously imitating other people, yet they have a deep need to a deep need to escape their their fixation with all whoever these internal models of desire are right they they who would they become rivals with right because that it just leads to absolute like a mimetic chaos where there, where there's no way out right i mean on a psychological level it leads to misery it can even lead to to, to conflict and even physical violence when everybody's turned inward on everybody else, right? So that, that's like the key, key image, right? We're, we're turned inward towards each other and we're fixated on each other. And the idea of a scapegoat is the idea that it, it's, the, it's the thing, it's the mechanism by which we become unattached to each other, like focused on, this, on, this in, on each other, ready to kill each other and we can collectively turn towards a single person or a single group and project all of our mimetic anger violence rivalry you name it onto the single individual or the single group and it discharges in Gerard's mind it discharges the mimetic tension that was was directed internally at one another and you know we expel the person we cancel the person in 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 older ancient societies they would they would kill the person through a variety of means and it gives it 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 temporarily causes us to 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 go from turning inward in a standoff in a face to face sort of group standoffs right mm-hmm. to standing shoulder to shoulder and agreeing to that that somebody else is the problem and what that does it just has the effect of of taking the the conflict that was between us and completely imputing it to 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 somebody who kind of has to bear the full brunt of of the mimetic tension. And that's you know there are rituals in 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 the in the Christian and in, and in, in Jewish scriptures, right? It says once once a year, you know, the the entire Israelite community came together, and ch- you know they chose a the goat, and they 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 symbolically transferred all of the of of their sins onto the goat and then drove the goat into the desert. That's where the word comes from. It comes from this ritual of of literally symbolically transferring everything onto the goat and Gerard would argue that although we, we we don't normally doesn't have it in that ritualistic way, we still do it in a variety of more subtle, invisible ways, whether it's through social media and our families. In, in our companies,
1: we still have that need to find somebody to discharge all of the mimetic tension that is built up. Right. Yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot with a big, big question on scapegoating. I did I did my I did my best. Yeah. It's just, it, just an yeah. intro. All right. Yeah. So it's a it's an exceptionally deep uh question. You can expand to different scales, the scale of society, think about it, how explain the very uh, ideas of sacrifice and so on. I think it's also, it's also useful to think about in our own different concrete life, so in personal life. So one example that Gerard gives in the book I Saw Satan Fall Like Lightning is a man who comes home after work and mistreats his children and wife, treating them as scapegoats, perhaps for some, uh, to release the amount of rivalry that has arisen in the office. So he's taking on these sort of competitive type desires by being in some sort of business environment, frustrated at that and comes home and mistreats his family as a result. Perhaps I think all of us have done something like this and we've not realized that we were involved in sort of transferring or purging some kind of rivalry that emerged elsewhere uh, into some, basically some innocent people who were completely uninvolved, right? Often, often our families. It's a great example that
0: Gerard gives and, and thank you for that. I mean, it's the, the idea of transferring rivalry is an important one. And the only thing that I would add to that example is that we transfer the rivalry to a situation where we can win easily, you know, so, you know, we can transfer it on, you know, uh, some people like treat their animals, like they take out, right. And, or like, or, or even their children, right. Like Like taking out rivalry in a situation where, where they can win, because in a traditional mimetic rivalry, there is no real possibility of, of 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 winning, right? So unfortunately, we we do try to because winning is what provides the the short amount of catharsis, right? Yeah. We're we're looking we're looking for that that win, and you know this is just such an applicable example that I think we can all relate to, where like in what instances do we do this in our everyday lives, right? And, it may not be your family. It may be a friend, right? It may be actually like acting out online, right? Like going on social media and attacking somebody because you can, you know, you can get like a, a momentary, like, oh, whatever, right? A right. little win, a little, right? And so just seeing the way that rivalry transfers itself in a variety of ways is just a really
1: practical application of the philosophy. Mm hmm. So, I'm always interested in four different life philosophies. You know, what's the account of sin? What's the feature of humanity that makes us always so unhappy all the time, where happiness is meant in sort of the the deep eudaimonic sense, not the, say, feeling good sense, sense of feeling good? And for the ancient Stoics, they thought that we were essentially corrupted by people around us. They didn't have quite the same sophisticated picture that Gerard did, but it's actually quite similar. They had a sort of tabula rasa view of humanity. We thought humans came into the world unperverted, and then we became worse by interacting with others, by interacting with whatever environments we ha- happened to find ourselves in. And I suppose with Gerard on the first pass, you know, the account of sin is that we are of course deeply mimetic creatures. We take on others' desires. But is there something deeper here that is like what, there's some desire that's not purely mimetic, but something that we come in the world wanting to be something else. So it's almost this desire for being, being greater than we are wanting to be something we shouldn't want to be. So, you know, the answer is definitely yes. There are, there's a teleology
0: of of desire in, in Girard's viewpoint and you could think of it as you know we not everybody agrees with this by the way and mm-hmm. there's even a difference between you could say the early stoics and like later stoics or christian stoicism when it when it started to be a bit intermingled with christian thought right and inform it and at least in sort of the some of the the later the later stoics in the Christian, there is there is a teleology of desire, just meaning to say that there you know we, we do have desires for certain ends, like desire is an aiming thing, right? And it aims to certain ends, like happiness, right? Like mm-hmm. human happiness. And, you know, Aristotle would say that you know we, we excellence in areas, right? Living well, you know, acquiring virtues, entering into nourishing relationships with other people. There's a, there's an element of the common good that makes me happy. Like I often don't know what i want unless or until i know what my wife wants because i want for both of us and i want us both to be happy because i have a relationship to my wife so mm-hmm. you know if you ask me you know luke can you come out hiking with me today i would like any good husband i would say well i don't know let me check with my wife because if she wants me or needs me to be home today then i can't cuz i so in a sense i like my my desire is informed by my wife's desire right we're social creatures. So the common good, it, made, it makes me happy to make my family happy and because well, we're on this shared journey. So there are, there are all kinds of human desires that I think do ha- are directed towards these things that we can, we can rightfully call good, that do per- have perennially made humans happy. And my Girardian interpretation is that mimetic desire can both help us on that journey. If there's a model of, of a virtue, for instance. And often the way that we acquire that is to look at a role model like a Socrates or somebody in our lives and imitate them in a positive way. It's how we acquire these things, but also mimetic desire can throw us off the path that we're on as we start looking to our right and our left. I, I like to think of it as like a compass, right? Like if you know how a compass works, you know it, it, the, the the needle points north. But you can very easily get false norths if you have like an iPad or a phone or metal things, technology near the compass, the the needle is going to point towards that thing and Mm -hmm. you're going to get a false north. And that's, I I think of a medic desire that way, right? So like it can make us forget that kind of more traditional, the, the more traditional sort of perennial human desires for those things. So what was the second part of your question? I'm forgetting now, but I think that that was... That was the base of it, right? Yeah, that's the- There there are, yeah.
1: One reading of my initial reading of Gerard was something like his account of sin is basically that he thinks that it's bad that we imitate people so often, and it's not maybe imitate their desires. But another reading would be that imitation is sort of how we express a deeper flaw in ourselves. So,
0: I mean, a quick definition of, of of sin in kind of a Girardian lens would be that sin is disordered desire in some way, where the desire becomes, for instance, detached from a a common good, where you know we can stand shoulder to shoulder with with another person and 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 seek some good that transcends the two of us, and it disorders it disorders our desire by sort of like the compass by by having that desire be deviated and sort of move towards things that ultimately won't make us happy. And that through mimetic desire, that process often happens. So I, I, I think that and to say that, you know, mimetic desire is only just to be super clear mm-hmm. that mimetic desire is bad or sinful would not be what Gerard right. is saying. You would say that it's, it's an, it's this neutral force that because of sin often manifests itself in in negative ways, right, so that that's there's a slight distinction to make there, like, like sort of because we're we, we sort of seem to be creatures that don't know what we want and have sort of these darkened intellects we, we're we, mimetic desire often manifests itself in, in in shadow sides and in in negative,
1: unhealthy ways that don't ultimately lead to happiness right, right that makes sense. so you have several tactics in your book for better relating to this aspect of our nature. What are several that you found either useful in your own life recently or you've seen be useful in the lives of Sure. The- I I just got time for a couple. There there are 15 that yeah, I've articulated in the book that
0: they really just the things that I've done and I'm sure there's there's probably hundreds of more things, right? But a couple of the ones that have been particularly powerful for me. One is Something that very few people have have ever done, and I'm I'm very, very grateful to have had the opportunity to do it, is go on a completely silent retreat for at least a day, totally unplugged from technology. It doesn't need to be in a special location. It doesn't need to be a destination, but truly like a, a full 24 hours of dead silence, right? You can have books. That's totally fine. But you know, no devices, no noise other than silent reflection, and you know what what you begin to realize after you've been in the silence for twelve, eighteen hours is you know de- desires and things that start bubbling up that you didn't even know existed. So I think oftentimes there's just so much noise that prevents us from even hearing or understanding the desires that we do have mm-hmm. um, so that's that's one. And, you know, I try to organize a few of these retreat-like experiences every year because I need them. You know, I, I need them on a regular basis, right? Sometimes I go for three to five days. So if there's any way that you can do a mini one in your, this is an ancient practice. Like, a, you know, I'm not inventing this. It's a very old a spiritual practice. You know, that, that to me was, was a game changer. It was actually in the context of a silent retreat that I first picked up a book off of an old dusty library in a monastery and, and, and found one of Gerard's books. And I don't think that it, would have, if it, that it would have settled in my bones had I been reading it on my phone while I was walking to a meeting. So mm-hmm. the context and form of an experience and the form in which we receive content matters. I think we've forgotten form in our world. you know, We think of content exists as content, no, it's always, it always comes in a form, right? A tweet is different than a book, which is different than the conversation that you and I are having right now. Another one, the second one that I'll, that I'll give you is, I believe there's, a, there's real value in trying to distinguish between what I like to call thin desires, which are highly mimetic desires, which are, there's nothing really enduring about them. You know, I want something today and tomorrow I can throw it away. Tomorrow it won't be important. Next week it won't be important. Those are what I call thin desires and I've, I've sort of learned to recognize them when I have them. I can laugh at them. Like my wife laughs at me when I have them. You know, I just, by now I have some pattern recognition. And those are different than thick desires, which are, seem to be something enduring and perennial, things that have manifested themselves throughout my life. Like the deep desire to read classical literature I've had since I was a kid. And that thick desire got covered up and buried for me when I was in my frantic startup days. You know. And I couldn't figure out like, what was, something was... I was missing something that, was clear, that clearly like nourished me in a deep way, and it was being covered up with thin desires. Right? I like to think of thin desires like a, in the fall, the leaves fall and you, know, you you don't rake them, you forget what's underneath. And for me, there was a process of, of like doing a clean out of the thin. And I did that by doing a, a real history of my desires and thinking, you know, look, what are some of those times in your life when you've been engaged in this in, in an action, when you achieved something, when you put your mind to something and did it? And it gave you a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment that was truly enduring, that lasted for more than a day or a week. The kind of thing that you know, lasted for years just thinking about it, right? Like you're really, really proud of whatever that thing was because it, you felt fully alive when you were doing it. And I think that those experiences, if, if we can identify them in our lives, you might have to go back to a very early time in your life, which is the whole point of the exercise. You know, you can go back as long as you want and you, you find a handful, at least a handful of these kinds of experiences. You can use, you can often find a thread that runs between them. And the thread is often a signpost to what, what I call thick desires, right? The kind of desires that may not be driven as mimetically as some of the other ones.
1: Excellent. Yeah, thanks for sharing those too. That's exceptionally helpful. Perfect. Well, one last question. I would be remiss not to ask you about any thoughts you'd like to share on stoicism. So, you know, what's what stuck out to you about stoicism when you were doing the deep dive and meditating on the different, different classical religious texts.
0: I think Stoicism is fascinating and, you know, it is, it is evolved. It evolved so much and it's continuing to evolve. And even, even within what we call the classical text, you know, as we spoke about earlier, right, there was this, there was this development and I think that Stoicism is very seminal And generative, in the sense that a lot of different things can come into contact with it that can be better explained, or that can add life and energy to Stoicism. And I think that you know Gerard is one of these thinkers that I'd like to see come into more contact with Stoicism. Right? Because there's an inherent tension, I think, between between Stoicism and 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 Gerard. Right? This idea that there's uh, this idea of we have desires and desires you could almost think of, like if you think of desires like ideas, like we have desires, what do we do with them? What relationship are we in with our desires? just like the, like the thoughts that come into our mind, like our emotions? Mm-hmm. How are we in relationship to those desires and, and ultimately to ourselves? And you know I think this is where stoicism offers some really compelling insights, but I think that it, it, I think that stoicism benefits. And other thought, like Gerard and memetic theory benefit from being in dialogue with one another. I think one of the things that I've always appreciated about stoicism um, is how generative and rich it is, and how how much it's it's open to to other ideas coming into contact with it, and then providing some mutual sort of enlightenment.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think that's well said. I think for Stoics like to always be dividing. Their judgments about what is good or not and what is up to them, and always focusing on virtue. And I think Gerard offers one way in which when you're not vigilant about the judgments you're making, you might be making a mistake or making judgments about what is good that are essentially just copying others. And that I think he brings out how subtly that can, that can occur in a way that is very beneficial, beneficial for Stoics. No doubt. Well so. excellent.
0: Well, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much, Caleb. I enjoyed it. Perfect.
1: Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com. And please get in touch with us at stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.